quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The news continues right now. Let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura? Thanks, Anderson. Nice to see you, and thank you. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And I want to start by asking you a question, and it's a real one. Anyone else tired of double standards? You know, one rule for you and then another one for everyone else. It's something that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, of all people, recently railed about. It's an old definition of abuse of power. Rules for thee, but not for me. Keep that in mind in a second, if you will, because we have some big breaking news tonight involving him and the January 6th committee. In a statement released just moments ago, McCarthy has said that he will not cooperate with the investigation, despite that statement of rules for thee and not for me, and also saying that he actually would if he were asked. And he was asked. A lot more of that in a moment. And look, I got to tell you, I don't really know when you watch this show which side you're on. I don't know what political party you affiliate with or who you vote for or even where you're from. But I'll bet, I'll bet that you are as sick of double standards as I am. I mean, you've been hearing about them at least all day today. Whether it's another elite athlete who thinks the COVID prevention rules somehow shouldn't apply to him because, well, he wants to win more titles at the Australian Open. Or maybe it's a Senate leader who tells you that democracy requires fighting for the rights of him and his colleagues in the political minority, but but the rights for a racial minority? Well, that's somehow not what democracy is supposed to be used for after all. You want to preserve a Senate rule, right? More than voting rights. That's the priority and the preference. Oh, wait, let me let me stop because I don't want to speak about these issues too much because minority leader Mitch McConnell, he might mistake common sense for a rant. The president's rant, rant yesterday was incoherent, incorrect, and beneath his office. You could not invent a better advertisement for the legislative filibuster than a president abandoning rational persuasion for pure demagoguery. I I just want you to think about the choice of words for a second. When he says demagoguery, I wonder if the word he was looking for was democracy, because I'm wondering how advocating for voting rights, how is, is that somehow beneath the president's office? And I do wonder also, where was this very standard before? And I, I remember because we were all old enough and young enough to remember and ask the question of where was Mitch McConnell on the voting rights of the political minority? You know, the time that he blocked a Senate vote on President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, a man who we now refer to as the Attorney General of the United States, but then was Judge Merrick Garland. That was back in 2016. And just so we have our chronology right, and you're all on the same page about double standards, 
Remember, following that year, he personally oversaw a change to the Senate rules that did away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in order to confirm President Trump's pick, Neil Gorsuch. And like I said last night, if if you can carve out an exception to the filibuster for the debt ceiling, well, surely you can carve out one before our democracy goes bankrupt. And, you know, speaking of honoring one's office, I want to talk about those who are in office, the members of Congress who are telling you that you have to follow the laws, that they are responsible for writing, but they don't have to. I mean, the average person, I can tell you, if they get a subpoena, when I was a prosecutor, it wasn't like an optional thing. It was you comply with the subpoena or we can have a squad car brought to your home and you can face jail time. But if you're a member of Congress that gets a request to testify before a congressional committee about an attack on the Capitol, you were in that Capitol. I mean, I I guess the response is if, if you feel like complying, How many times have you asked yourself how the response and the treatment would be different if it were you in their shoes? I mean, I do it at least 10 times a day. We're going to get into all of this tonight right here with the context you need to decide for yourself whether this nation of laws has one standard. And we know so far Republican Congressman Jim Jordan and Scott Perry, you see there, they're not complying with the January 6th committees, their request to give voluntary testimony about that day and not having yet been subpoenaed and, and their interactions with then-President Trump. And, and the question I have is why? I mean, what do they have to hide? Jordan is the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, and he's already said multiple times he's got nothing, nothing to hide. So why not cooperate? And the committee just moved up the totem pole right on up to the top Republican minority leader, Kevin McCarthy. And this is significant. You have to understand, right? We're talking about the number of witnesses who've already been before this committee. We know, of course, the relationship that McCarthy had with then-President Trump and, frankly, perhaps this day. And they want to know about those conversations with him before and during and even after the insurrection. And they are citing that McCarthy himself has already acknowledged speaking directly with the former president, not just some day, but actually that day, and while the violence was underway. And let's just go back in time just a little bit, a few months ago, when back in May, McCarthy said that he would cooperate if he were asked. Would you be willing to testify about your conversation with Donald Trump on January 6th if you were asked by an outside commission? Sure. You Next would. question. Oh, okay, well, sure. Next question. Well, here's one. That was then, but what about now? Because now he says that he will not cooperate. Why? In a statement just out tonight, he says, and I quote, this committee is not conducting a legitimate investigation as Speaker Pelosi took the unprecedented action of rejecting the Republican members I named to serve on the committee. It is not serving any legislative purpose. And he goes on, as a representative and the leader of the minority party is with neither regret nor satisfaction that I have concluded to not participate with this select committee's abuse of power that stains this institution today and will harm it 
going forward. Now, remember I told you to recall from before that moment of rules for thee, but not for me. And by the way, what can the House Select Committee do if Perry and Jordan and McCarthy won't sit down with them? Do they have the constitutional right to subpoena their own fellow lawmakers and compel them to cooperate? Well, the head of the panel says that that very question is now being explored. So I want to take, bring in somebody right now who's a former general counsel to the House of Representatives. His name is Stanley Brand. And he represents former Deputy Chief, White House Chief of Staff, Dan Scavino, before this very committee. Welcome to the show. Nice to see you, Stan Brand. Good evening. You know, I have to launch right in here. I, I, I wonder what your take is. And I, spoiler, I think I already know. Um, wh what do you make of the decision not to voluntarily cooperate with a select committee in Congress? Well, I make a couple of things. One is that because the committee or members of the committee have stated unabashedly that they want to call members in for the purpose of inducing perjury and sending them off to the Department of Justice, among other purposes, they've really revealed two things. They revealed that they're more aligned in that respect with law enforcement than they are with the legislative inquiry. And secondly, they are on the cusp of stripping members of their speech or debate clause privilege, which they ha would have if, for instance, the Department of Justice subpoenaed them directly to a grand jury or charged them. And, th and this privilege is not for the personal aggrandizement of the members. It's to protect the independence and, and sanctity of members of Congress and their position vis-a-vis co-equal branches, and in this case, their own, their own house. And the second thing I'd say is that member discipline, subpoenaing members, has never been done by legislative committees. That's always been the province of the Ethics Committee. And that's uh, because the Ethics Committee is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans to prevent the majority from abusing the rights of the minority. Well, hold on, so, Dan. On, th on that point, let me jump in because a couple points. Number one, the fact that it has never been done does not mean that they are prevented from doing so. And I would note, of course, a lot of things haven't been done in recent times, namely an attack on the capital of the United States in, the, in, the, in Congress. Um, but on the point of who gets to make that these decisions, Stan, oh, hold on, I'm, I'm going I'm to finish my point, then I want to invite you to continue to speak. When you talk okay. about the idea of, um, of the legitimacy, essentially, or the ability for, and they're talking about trying to um, invite per perjury, when I read the letters from the committee that invites the voluntary, not the punitive, but the voluntary testimony of members of Congress, they're asking about what they actually know. Why do you view it as a punishment to give transparent information? Well, they're not punishing them. They're setting them up potentially for a prosecution by the Department of Justice. They've openly said that. And, and let me go back to your earlier point, which, which you said, you know, things, precedents in the House are broken all the time. That is true. Imagine the Republicans take over the House in November. And imagine that a Republican legislative committee decides now on the precedent built here to subpoena or request interviews with members, Democratic members, on their conversations with President Biden. Um, these things have a, have a way of metastasizing and becoming very uncomfortable precedents that really, I don't think, serve the long-term interests of the House, no matter who's in control. 
Well, I understand that point about the precedent being set. And again, it's the novelty, not the just dismissal of precedent that I focus on here. But even if, let's carry that out. Let's think about the logical conclusions of that, Stan. Even if the Republicans were to do what you're talking about, hasn't a precedent also now been set by the idea of a sitting member of Cong Congress being able to thumb your nose and say, no, I don't have to do it because I think that you might be inviting perjury? I mean, couldn't Democrats ultimately then say, well, you know what? I will, I will, I see you are delegitimizing a duly issued subpoena, and I raise you with the same behavior you engaged in. Isn't that also a risk? And doesn't it also disserve what Congress's role is here? Well, again, the self-disciplinary process, to the extent that, that Congress wants to inquire into members' behavior for purposes of exercising their constitutional right to impose discipline, they still have that power, and they can do that through the Ethics Committee. There's nothing that stops them from doing that at any point. The, the precedent here uh, is beyond that, though. This is a legislative committee, which now is making noises and sounds, not like a legislative committee, but like a prosecutor's office. By And, and I quote Liz Cheney saying, you know, she wants to invite President Trump in. And I have no truck with President Trump particularly, but that he want, they want to invite President Trump in and if they catch him lying, they'll send him off to the Department of Justice. But isn't That's that everyone, Stan? But isn't that everyone? I mean, if, if I invite someone, if I'm in trial, you're a lawyer. If you're in trial and you have somebody who's subpoenaed to testify and they end up lying on the stand, I mean, isn't that risk sort of the assumption by which if somebody not, were to perjure themselves? That's, that's a pretty much of there, a, a standard. There, there are cases in the District of Columbia that hold that when Congress... Uh, acts like a grand jury and subpoenas people for the purpose of setting them up for perjury, it's not part of a valid legislative inquiry. And those cases uh, occurred at a very critical time in our history during the 50s and 60s when the House Un-American Activities Committee and others were busy abusing people's rights and the courts have, have shut that down. There are limits to the congressional investigative power just last term, the Supreme Court reminded the Congress when they subpoenaed Trump's personal business records that the function of Congress is as a, a, le a legislative body and yeah. not as a yeah. law enforcement agency. I do hear you, Stan. I wish I had more time to talk to you about that, but I will leave you with this before I turn to our next guest, and that is when we read these letters— there's a lot contained from the committee about why they want them to testify and very little, if any, attention is given to the thought of perjury. I, That's on the onus. But I, I got to end it. This is not going to end today because you know what? The committee's okay. still ongoing. We'll talk again soon. Can I call you Stan? Okay. Stan Brand? Thank you so much. Listen, Great, I want to bring in um, someone who also famously did testify before a congressional select committee. I note again, did testify. John Dean is the former White House counsel to Richard Nixon. John Dean, it's good to see you. I would love to hear your reaction to this notion that inviting someone to testify about what they knew and experienced that day and who they spoke to, that that somehow is punitive on a voluntary basis. What do you say? I, I disagree with the portrait that Stan is trying to paint of this picture of this committee. I think they're being very careful to make it very clear they have a legislative intent. They they have been charged with finding out what happened on January 6th. They're looking at every aspect of it. Uh, they're trying to understand the larger picture. 
And that is the focus of this committee and, and not to prosecute anybody. It's to elicit information. Now, can you portray it that way? Of course, you by cherry picking, you can. But I don't it's, it, this has been before two courts already. And they both found this committee is totally legitimate and has standing to proceed as it is. So that issue, I think, is moot at this point. Now, he did talk about the um, speech and debate privilege, and I, I want you to weigh in on that because, of course, it does say in the Constitution, essentially, it's Congress's job to look at these issues. You do have the idea of some privileges associated with, say, a member of Congress not being held to account in official duties for everything that he or she is doing. But it does say that um, representatives shall not be questioned in any other place, which says to me that this is the place. It's Congress who's supposed to be asking the questions if there is an issue. Is that not accurate? You're right on it, Laura. That's exactly what that clause says. It, and it's really a rather unique exception that the place they can clearly be questioned about anything is the house to which they belong. Uh, that certainly is implicit in all the code of ethics that apply to the members of the House and Senate. Uh, and it would certainly apply uh, also with a subpoena. They're, certainly would they have that power. And it, it, there's nothing in this debate clause that we should exclude the use of a subpoena. And I would note again, a duly issued subpoena by a legitimate select committee. John Dean, thank you so much for your time. Talk again. Thank you. You know, look, Republican senators, while they're busy using what's called a bizarre excuse to try and block a judicial nominee, and that's the kindest word I can think right now, bizarre. But it's one phrase in particular by a conservative senator that is drawing not only mockery, but outrage and questions about whether race is playing a factor in their decision. We'll talk about it with the former head of the NAACP next. Now look, this is how Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee questioned one of President Biden's judicial nominees today. Listen to this. On the eve of his hearing, it has been made public that he has a rap sheet with a laundry list of citations, including multiple failures to appear in court. In Tennessee, we expect our judges to respect the law, not disregard it. If Mr. Mathis thought he was above the law before, imagine how he'll conduct himself if he's confirmed as a federal judge. Rap sheet. I mean, if you're like me and you heard her say that, you might be thinking, what did this man do? So let me tell you about his, was the word rap sheet she used? So he apparently forgot to pay for three speeding tickets over 10 years ago. One, one, now brace yourself, one was for going five miles over the speed limit. And by the way, Mathis, the man you see here, he's from Tennessee, the state that Blackburn represents. And listen to how he had to respond. I highly regret uh, um, that I'm in this situation. Uh, I feel like I've embarrassed my my family. Um, And I truly regret that. Uh, Wow. I deserve this. They don't. I can assure the committee that I'm a law-abiding citizen. Uh, I've I've never been arrested. I've never been, been charged with a crime. You shouldn't be embarrassed or regret 
I mean, he's not the one who should be embarrassed about the way you handled this situation. And I want to bring in now uh, the former NAACP president and CEO, Cornell William Brooks, because I can imagine, Cornell, I could almost predict what your reaction was. I almost called you to be like, did you see this just now? What's your reaction to that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was extraordinarily uh, painful to watch as an American and as an African-American and certainly as a black man. Why? Because here we have the first woman elected to the United States Senate from the state of Tennessee, humiliating, denigrating, demeaning a black man who has the opportunity to be the first black man to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. She refers to some uh, less than a handful of speeding tickets as a rap sheet. Now, you know, Laura, one out of every three American adults has a criminal record. That is to say a record of arrest. 77 million people. And he's this not one of them. He's not one of those people, though. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. And so we know that this notion, this invoking of a rap sheet invokes an ugly history of criminalizing and stereotyping and degrading black people. So in the context of a judicial nomination hearing, he is surrounded by his family and literally he is humiliated, almost reduced to tears in front of his children. This is this is uh, this is a conduct unbecoming of a United States senator and surprising. And you know, and you know, uh, you know what, Cornell, I couldn't help but think in the recent thoughts about how judicial nominees have been handled. I thought to myself, gosh, I wonder how this same senator may have acted when somebody was accused of sexual misconduct who was a nominee for the Supreme Court. Surely a statement that she made and the ideas of what we expect about above the law and these notions about years ago behavior that are alleged, I I assume she had the same one, but instead do we have the clip of what she actually said about, say, a justice, now Justice Kavanaugh? Do we have that? Because I want to play it if mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. Let's play it. We have spent enough time and money trashing a good man and his name. He is on the Supreme Court. Justice Kavanaugh is an honorable man. He is doing a, an honorable job on the Supreme Court. But Cornell, did he speed? Did he ever speed? I mean, because that would make him dishonorable and somebody who imagined should be on the court. Uh, That strikes me as quite a dichotomy, even though the allegations obviously are quite distinct. It's a dichotomy, uh, but it's also rank hypocrisy. Uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was my classmate at Yale Law School. Um, I expected him to be uh, in in question uh, fairly in the same way I expected this judicial nominee uh, attorney Mathis to be questioned fairly, but to suggest that he was somehow a, a, a felon, somehow a ne'er-do-well, uh, a, 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 essentially a thug being nominated to the bench. Come on, let's be fair. I mean, let, let, let's be fair. Millions of Americans have speeding tickets. This is not a disqualifying uh, characteristic it is not a fatal character flaw, particularly, Laura, for speeding tickets 10 years ago. And we've yet to talk about the fact that this senator had her own issues with respect to speeding on Constitution Avenue in Washington, D.C. 
Do you mean the one when she allegedly flashed her congressional pin to get out of a speeding ticket? But let, let's not talk about that, Cornell, because I think that perhaps that would not be the point she was trying to make. And I got to tell you, I am an officer of the court, as you are, and I understand and appreciate being able to abide by the principles of the law. But the intended humiliation disturbed me as a woman, as, a, as an attorney, as a prosecutor, and someone who's been before appellate courts. And I know you know the same as well. Cornell William Brooks, thank you so much. It's always good to be with you, Laura. Look, I got to tell you, I mean, that gets you, it, it, it bothers me. I have to tell you, it bothers me as a human and as a black woman to see what transpired in the, in the role that a senator played in that. But what also bothers me is what's happening in our hospitals, particularly amidst the pandemic. We know that COVID vaccines are saving lives, but you see hospitals are once again at the breaking point. And I've got an ER doctor who is seeing the worst of it, and he's here to share what the Omicron surge is doing to hospitals right now and how this variant has the potential to crush America's health system. Don't be confused, even if it's said to be milder. We'll be right back. Vaxxed and done. Look, it's an increasing sentiment, this vaxxed and done, among even vaccinated Americans that are getting sick with Omicron that they think it might not be so bad if it means mild symptoms, they've, they've done their due diligence. They've gotten vaccinated. They've gotten boosted. They've socially distanced. They wear the masks. And so is it time to treat it like the flu and move on? That can be the thought of some who are vaxxed and done. But health experts like my next guest are cautioning against that very mindset of being vaxxed and done. And they're pointing to this as the reason. Rising hospitalization rates in nearly every single state across this country. You realize that about one in four U.S. hospitals are recording, reporting what they're calling a critical staffing shortage. And that is in January of 2022. That's the highest level since the pandemic began over two years ago. I mean, here, just look, here is a snapshot of what the impact has been. Look at Kansas, where we're pointing to right now. In Kansas, hospitals aren't just dealing with shortfalls in, say, staffing. They're also dealing with it for ventilators and monoclonal antibody shortages. You've got regions like in New York and in Ohio, and they've had to postpone non-essential surgeries. And I remind people what happened early in the pandemic in Ohio, but what was being classified as non-essential when it came to women. And while Mississippi now requires transferring the critically ill to other hospitals on a rotating basis just to avoid overflow. I mean, a number of these states this week alone have even had to deploy more National Guard members to try to help them with the overwhelmed hospitals. And it's partly the reason that the CDC is now forecasting that average COVID deaths, and this is average COVID deaths per day, could jump to over 2,600 over the next four weeks alone. Do you realize that that's 62,000, 62,000 more deaths by next month alone? And it's exactly why the ER doctor Craig Spencer wrote this in an op-ed in the New York Times. He says, quote, I fear healthcare collapse more than Omicron. Dr. Craig Spencer is here with me now. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Spencer. 
You know, it's Thanks it's unbelievable. Saying, I'm glad you're here, but I, I tell you, it is unbelievable to see those those maps and those figures and think about where we are right now in January 2022. And, and you can imagine there is fatigue among the people on this very issue. But you want to caution people: don't let the fatigue and wanting to be vaxxed and done lull you into a false sense of comfort, right? Absolutely. Look, what I think is really important for people to understand right now is I know you're fatigued. There is good news in addition to that daunting news that you just shared. Look, this is not March 2020. We know that the likelihood of having severe illness, especially if you're vaccinated, is much lower. We have other treatment options. We have other things that we can do. Years of experience in treating this disease. So that 2,600 number of deaths is huge. But likely, you know, just a year or two years ago would have been much higher. We've learned a lot. The problem is, is that right now we have hospitals where there's not enough nurses to take care of the patients who are coming in, the COVID patients and the non-COVID patients. That's exactly why we need to do everything we can to try to limit the number of people that are infected, not just those that are older or unvaccinated or maybe not boosted, but everyone, because each infection represents another potential to infect more people. And we need to do whatever we can to slow that spread right now to ease the pressure on our hospitals. And so what are you seeing personally? I mean, you tweeted out as personal anecdote just today alone, and you said, last night I took care of COVID patients. One was dehydrated and had renal failure from COVID. Another had a stroke. Others need oxygen, including high flow unvaccinated. Um, And one that had COVID but couldn't go home because her home health aid wouldn't come anymore. I mean, how troubling to hear what's happening on the ground. Right. This is again, this is different than a year ago or two years ago. And that, you know, I would walk into the hospital then and it felt like the apocalypse with so many people on the ventilator, so many people dying every day. Right now, we're still seeing sick people that need oxygen, the overwhelming majority of which are unvaccinated. But a lot of the patients that we're seeing right now have underlying chronic conditions that are being exacerbated, being made worse by COVID. So they may not look like that classic COVID patient. But as I pointed out, you know, someone who gets COVID is dehydrated and needs to stay in the hospital or someone who gets COVID and is too weak and they can't go home because they're a fall risk. Now, those aren't as bad in one sense as those kind of classic COVID patients we were seeing before. But every single patient that needs to stay in the hospital takes up a bed and beds and staffing are are what in short supply right now. And, you know, when you said the idea of underlying health conditions, my mind went to the fact that although COVID-19 obviously has exacerbated so many things, it's not as if cancer went away or breast exams needed to not be performed any longer or colonoscopies didn't need to be done or routine health screenings. I mean, all these things also, in addition to the appendicitis and every other condition, arm breaks and the like, heart attacks, these are all still happening. And so for every bed taken, that means the attention and resources can't go to those people in a timely fashion. Correct. Not only are we pulling away that, those resources from those patients, but we're putting them at greater risk. My greatest fear and the thing that I've been trying to do the most in recent shifts is to control exposure for those that are in the hospital without COVID to try to prevent them from getting it. You know, patients that have cancer on chemotherapy who come in because they're having side effects and have done everything they can, including getting vaccinated, multiple doses, Um, but whose immune system doesn't respond in the same way and for whom an infection would be a lot more severe. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Go around, make sure they have masks on, try to separate people. But with so many people coming in at the same time with COVID, for COVID, uh, for non-COVID reasons, whatever it is, it makes it a lot harder to do that job to keep the COVID patients safe 
and the non-COVID patient safe as well. Dr. Craig Spencer, thank you for giving us the context about the entire health system as an ecosystem, not just one directive. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. And now to a controversy that's surrounding the world's number one men's tennis player. You know him, Novak, Novak Djokovic. He's in Australia hoping to defend his title at the Australian Open, but the threat of deportation is still looming after some admissions that he made some mistakes on his immigration forms and didn't isolate after recently testing positive for COVID. We'll take it all on with Bob Costas next. So look, we're awaiting a decision from Australia's immigration minister on whether tennis star Novak Djokovic will be allowed to stay in the country and play in the Australian Open after his COVID vaccination status controversy. Now remember that he admitted today that he did not immediately self-isolate after testing positive for COVID-19 back in December. In fact, he spent more than a half hour with French journalists. He writes, I felt obliged to go ahead and conduct the interview as I didn't want to let the journalist down. I socially distanced and wore a mask, except when my photograph was being taken. Now, on reflection, this was an error of judgment. So what exactly could all of this mean for his reputation and whether he ultimately will be able to play in Australia? Let's bring in the incomparable Bob Costas right now to discuss Bob, I would love to hear your take on this idea of mistakes and blaming it on agents and lapses in judgment. What's your take? And in addition to uh, the episode with L'Equipe, the French sports journal, there's the fact that there was what he calls a simple clerical error. Others might view it as a conscious lie of contending, whoever filled out the form, on his to enter Australia, that he had not traveled to other nations when there was clear evidence that he had in the days preceding. And it's all part of a pattern of contempt for common sense when it comes to the medical issues and also contempt for the common good. And in sports, and I guess in parts of entertainment or whatever, if you're great enough and if you're important enough to the bottom line because your star value means people in the seats and eyeballs on television, there are people who will excuse that or try and work around it, including the Australian Tennis Committee, which at first said, sure, he's welcome. Then they got pushback uh, from the border authorities in Australia. Now he has won, as you indicated, at least a preliminary judgment, but it's not at all certain that he'll be on the court when the Australian Open begins on Monday. And I might note that all four of the tennis majors are in different countries. They're in France, they're in England, they're in Australia, and the U.S. Open is obviously here uh, in the United States. So you're running up against different local and national regulations. Now, Djokovic plays an individual sport. So in the end, he may be only undoing himself in this circumstance. But leave aside the medical issues and the ignoring of the overwhelming consensus of credible medical authorities from those who remain anti-vax. In team sports, they are not good team players. And that's part of the ethos forever of sports. Are you a good teammate? Not well, are you thing. good well, at the, thing, the sport, well, but the are you a good it. teammate? Well, for, well, I, well, look, I know I'm not a tennis player and I don't pretend to be. I know he's an mm-hmm. individual tennis player. But when you're talking about a pandemic, 
we're all supposed to be on this team. And so what you do, even as an individual player, as long as there's oxygen sure. in that court, it's still the same thing. And and I want to get to the point you raised, and I want to thank you, first of all, for pronouncing the name of that French newspaper, L'Equipe, because I don't speak French, nor do I pretend to. Mm-hmm. But I would tell you something. I, I also don't appreciate the idea of this notion of elitism being able to give you carte blanche to do what you want. I mean, I understand and appreciate athletics, athleticism, but I don't understand the reason which we continue to allow people to get a pass. The rules that apply to everyone else don't apply if you're able to be an elite athlete. We've seen it in baseball. We've seen it in football. We've seen it in basketball. We're seeing it in tennis. Why mm-hmm. don't the rules apply to those who live and die by the lines of the court? I want to refer our viewers here, Laura, to a brilliant piece by one of the best sports journalists of my lifetime, full disclosure, longtime friend and colleague, Howard Bryant, on the ESPN website. He writes about this very syndrome in greater depth and nuance than we can manage in the limited time here. But Howard Bryant's piece, which just dropped today, is a must-read for anybody who's interested in the full texture of this. And his essential point is the point that you're making here. Look, Aaron Rodgers is one of the greatest players of all time. He's the best and most valuable player in the National Football League. No Green Bay Packer, given the fact that almost all of them are vaccinated and they're young and healthy, thinks that ducking into a huddle with Aaron Rodgers puts their individual health in jeopardy. But should the Packers, who have a good path to the Super Bowl, get as far as the Super Bowl, there are different protocols for unvaccinated and vaccinated players still. He had a 90-day exemption after he tested positive in early November. That exemption, as it happens, runs out two days after the conference championship games. If Aaron Rodgers should make it to the Super Bowl, and if, let's say, on the Wednesday before the game, he tests positive, completely asymptomatic, he can't play in the Super Bowl. Is that what an unselfish, good teammate does? He's a great, great player. And for whatever it's worth, in my dealings with him, which go back a few years because I haven't covered football in a while, but I liked him. I found him interesting. I have no ax to grind. But this is not, this is not the behavior of a first-rate teammate, in my view. Well, let me tell you, I am not pulling Leaving for the Green Bay Packers. I'm not pulling for Green I mean, I'm from Minnesota, so go Vikings. Skull. I don't want to see the Packers in. This issue you're talking about is a very different one, and I appreciate it. So I just can't get there with you in the cheese heads. But I tell you, mm. it, it posed a very interesting question about that very notion of what it's going to look like in team players in a collective pandemic. Bob Costas, thank you for your insight, as always. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Laura. Very quick, I hate to break this to you. The Vikings are out of the playoffs and they just fired their coach. I'm sorry, I'm we, sorry have a, we have a bad connection all of a sudden, Bob Costas. I just can't seem to hear you any longer. I don't know what happened. Oops, sorry about that. Listen, Donald Trump, he may have gotten vaccinated in secret, but he's now, well, he's loud about the merits of vaccinations. And look, he's throwing shade, kind of like I did to the Packers. No offense, Wisconsin. He's throwing shade at other politicians about them being cagey about their VAC status. That U-turn, along with some notable others, in my case, next. 180 days ago today, the U.S. Surgeon General called COVID misinformation a serious threat to public health. Now, today, one of the biggest pushers of misinformation is pulling a 180 when it comes to one of his biggest allies, Governor Ron DeSantis. I watched a couple of politicians be interviewed And one of the questions was, did you get the booster? Because they had the vaccine. 
And they, oh, they're answering it like, in other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it. Because they're gutless. You've got to say it. Whether you had it or not, say it. Well, that's rich. And man, what a change. But it's not just the man responsible for Operation Warp Speed doing a kind of 180 worthy of calling out. After all, we've known about his vaccination status for quite some time. For me, it's the 180s from some Republican members of Congress on January 6th. It's the 180s on which elections on the same ballot, I might add, are somehow fraudulent and which should actually count. The 180s on bipartisanship, the 180s on the need to fortify voting rights, on on Supreme Court precedent, on honoring congressional subpoenas, the 180s on the legitimacy of the oversight functions of our Congress and even by its own members, even though Republicans had no problem pushing numerous investigations into Benghazi. But it's more than convenient reversals that bother me. It's that some feel like they are pulling one over on you. The thought that you're not only gullible, but have the short-term memory of Ted Lasso's goldfish. They're hoping that you will buy into their rewrite rather than holding them accountable. And I, I gotta tell you, I find myself watching press conferences these days and these interviews like Kathy Bates and her role as Annie Wilkes in Misery, complaining how everyone conveniently forgot what really happened before the cliffhanger as they settle into their seats for the next installment of the story. This isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. Now look, people should have the opportunity to evolve and change their minds about something. But pretending like they were never wrong is just not right. And mistaking or even playing voters for fools, that's as denigrating to our democracy as any other lie, big or small. I'll chat with Don Lemon next. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. (laughs) Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.